0: Well, good morning, everybody. Over the last couple of days, uh, Malcolm and I have been representing Hope Church up in Christchurch, and we've been away to a couple of significant events in the life of the diocese of the CCA churches. On Friday, uh, Mel and I attended a clergy day for the South Islands uh, with Bishop Jay, and then yesterday we had the first ordination service in the South Island. Uh, for two new ordinands Uh, the week before there was an ordination service for two in the North Island so four people over the last couple of weeks have been set apart ordained uh, to the office of deacon to serve and lead in the church Uh, so it's a significant uh, weekend uh, for the life of the diocese so we give thanks and yesterday at the service uh, the the man who was leading the service Andrew said it feels a bit like the end of the beginning and uh, I think that was a fairly accurate assessment so we give thanks to God for what he's doing in the life of the wider church back on August the 2nd we began our journey through the gospel of Luke and over the last four months we've been hearing and following Luke's account of Jesus of Nazareth of his birth of his gathering the disciples of his proclamation of the gospel, his proclamation of the kingdom of God. We've been learning about these mighty acts that Jesus has been doing, uh, ushering in the kingdom of God of healing, of deliverance, of forgiving of sin. And uh, in chapter 19, in verse 28 of Luke's gospel, we come to something of the climax of this gospel. In chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time and all hell breaks loose. Now, I'm a little sad to say that actually this morning we're going to have a bit of a break in Luke's gospel. Over the summer, we're going to take a two-month break uh, and we're not going to actually get to the passion narrative until the new year, so I'm a little bit sad about that. Uh, But this morning, we come to two beautiful chapters uh, well one and a half actually, chapter 18 and the first portion of chapter 19 with Jesus on the edge of Jerusalem. He's just about to enter into Jerusalem. That's the, that's the context of where we're listening and landing this morning. In these two chapters, Jesus continues his teaching about the kingdom of God with three parables He gives a number of displays of the kingdom breaking in. He welcomes and blesses the children. He challenges a rich ruler. He heals a blind man. He dines with a chief tax collector. And this morning, I'm going to focus on two of those encounters, one parable and one uh, encounter with a tax collector. So let's just pause for prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the life of your church We thank you for the journey that you've been taking us on over the last four months through this gospel. And we thank you for what you're teaching us. We pray, Lord, that by your grace, by your spirit, you'll take the word that's been read and the word that's about to be proclaimed. You'll settle it on our hearts that we might be transformed to live in the kingdom as you've called us to do. So give us listening ears. Grant us your faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already got your Bibles open, turn with me to chapter 18 in Luke's gospel, and I'm reading from verse 9. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like these people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood up at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted." You know, I heard somebody speaking at uh, men's breakfast last weekend talking about humility and, and actually how humble they were. In fact, I think the speaker said he was particularly humble, perhaps one of the, the humblest men in the church. Would that be right, Tim? Something along those lines, I think. No problem at all with pride. Now, now this uh, passage is not directed, Tim's preaching last week, so I have to be careful, next week, so I have to be careful about what I say. This verse is not directed at him it's a directed at us to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else Jesus told them this parable literally people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt that's the people who Jesus is addressing in this parable they trusted in their own righteousness in their own goodness and they looked at others with contempt. Now, there are two words in this uh, parable which are key and they're closely related. Two English words are righteousness and justified. Firstly, righteousness, this key word that carries so much theological freight from start to finish of the scriptures. Righteousness, the condition of rightness in your life as defined by God. It has to do with faithfulness to God's laws, but supremely it's about having right relationships. Righteousness is supremely about having right relationships defined by God. These right and good relationships are a gift from God. And the parable is aimed at people who are confident in their own ability to get those righteous relationships. So, verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. He stood by himself and he gives thanks to God. He starts comparing himself with others. He's not like these other people. And whenever we start comparing ourselves to people around us, you can be sure that our righteousness is going off track. Whenever you start to compare yourself, you open yourself up either for pride or despair. This man was falling into the first trap of prides. I'm not like robbers. I'm not like evildoers, adulterers, or this despised tax collector who he sees standing beside him and then he lists to goes on to list his faithful acts he is religiously obedient he's fasting he's tithing he's reminding God of just how good he is his pride has made him confident in his righteousness why is such confidence a problem why is such confidence a problem Surely Jesus is not saying obedience to God's command is a bad thing. No, the obedience is not the problem. The confidence is not the problem either. The problem with pride is it mistakes the source of blessing. It mistakes where this righteousness comes from. In Deuteronomy 9, God speaks to Israel and he says the following. Deuteronomy 9, 1. Hear, Israel. You are now about to cross into the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and stronger than you with large cities that have walls up to the sky. Us, the Lord your God, after the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Do not think that the blessing you're about to embark on and take these lands... It's because of your righteousness. And three times in those few verses in chapter 9 in Deuteronomy, three times the Lord says, don't think it's because of your righteousness that you're entering into this promised land. The Pharisee has forgotten this truth. When Moses went up to the mountain in Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, God gave Israel the commands which were prefaced with I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. The commands follow the grace of God, the gracious action of God's. Righteous obedience always follows grace, God's grace. So the source of all righteousness is God Almighty, and the moment we forget that is the moment we stumble into desperate sin. The tax collector had not forgotten this in the parable. Look at verse 13. When the tax collector stood at a distance, he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Literally, God, make an atonement for me, a sinner. Cover over my sin. The pride of the Pharisee and the humility of the tax collector are clearly on show. And Jesus' verdict is, it was the self-acknowledged sinner who leaves justified before God? look at the following I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted so it is the self-acknowledged sinner who goes away justified declared not guilty and this is the second key word in this parable the language of justification, declared not guilty, actually made righteous. And this language is, of course, central to Paul's understanding of the gospel. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we read the following. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God's has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith Because in his forbearance, he has left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, and the one who justifies is to have faith in Jesus. Now, we're going to come back to this shortly because it's such a key understanding for this parable. But simply to notice at this point, the sacrifice of atonement... That the tax collector was pleading and praying for in humility, have mercy on me a sinner, was fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus at Calvary. Martin Luther's great discovery in the early 16th century was that no amount of work, no amount of religious striving, no amount of his endeavor could appease his guilty conscience. Christ alone could save him. The tax collector in Jesus' parable got this. And so here's the verdict that Jesus gave him. I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now you might have heard me say before that we either humble ourselves or God humbles us. And I believe this text teaches that. We either humble ourselves or God will humble us. It's been my experience in 20 years of pastoral ministry to observe this, and yes, in my own life, I observe this. We either humble ourselves or God will humble us. And until we learn that deep truth of placing ourselves at the foot of the cross, That any acts of mine are but filthy rags until they are consecrated by the Spirit of God. Until we realize that all righteousness is a gift from God. God will take steps to humble us. And let me say, those steps can be brutal. The idols in our heart, the pride in our flesh, they don't disappear by just saying, please be gone. The works of the flesh have to be put to death, mortification, as our Puritan brethren would say. And if you don't begin the process, God will do it for you, and it will be hard, a hard, hard road. The tax collector got this. The tax collector got this. And he went away justified, declared not guilty in God's sight. Now, chapter 19 begins with another tax collector. And we move from a parable to an actual encounter with a tax collector. Not just any tax collector. We find in the beginning of chapter 19, the chief tax collector in the town of Jericho. And so we read from verse 1 in chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore tree to see since Jesus was coming his way. Now, there is no word in all of Scripture that is there by accident. There is no word that is not there by God's design. And so here we find Jesus traveling through Jericho, that old walled city of times gone by he's on his way to jerusalem remember many many centuries earlier joshua jesus hebrew namesake crossed over from the wilderness into the land that god had promised his forebears after much testing and after much refining in the wilderness the first generation of israelites were lost in the wilderness except for two people joshua and caleb and they cross over the water the river jordan and the first barrier if they like that they come across in the promised land is this walled city of jericho how many of you know that you can come through a time of testing and you can still find the walls around your hearts how many of you know that those walls need to be dismantled by god's Jesus enters this walled city of old, and a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus was there. Not just any old tax collector. He's the chief of tax collectors. He's despised. The text says he's a wealthy man because the tax collectors of old would have gained their revenue by commission. And so all the tax collectors were receiving money by commission. The chief tax collector was receiving more money because he was at the top of the pyramids. And so here we find this man, he's despised. But he wants to see Jesus. He wants to know who Jesus is. Now, question, who searches out who in this encounter? Does Zacchaeus search out Jesus? Or does Jesus search out Zacchaeus? And the answer, of course, is yes. The answer is yes. Jesus comes to the town, and this wee shorty of a tax collector wants to see Jesus, so he runs, and he climbs a tree, a sycamore tree, and Jesus sees him, and he says the following, Zacchaeus, come down immediately, I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. The crowd muttering could rightly be translated, the crowd were grumbling. And there's echoes of Israel in the wilderness grumbling. And they're grumbling, why? They're grumbling because of God's grace. The crowd here are grumbling because, again, of God's grace and so we read on in verse 8 but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord look lords here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything I will pay back four times the amounts it's interesting to note that Zacchaeus name means pure and innocent until this encounter, he has been far from pure and innocent in his dealings. But he has this personal encounter with Jesus, and the outcome of this personal encounter, this encounter with grace, is that he generously gives to the poor half his possessions, Luke records, and he'll put right anyone he has cheated by paying back fourfold of his ill-gotten gain. And so this encounter with grace We see the response of generosity and we see this response of integrity or restitution flowing from this encounter of grace. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Today salvation has come to Zacchaeus. his household why because he was rich because he was pure no because he had had an encounter of grace he had had an encounter with the source of grace Jesus Christ and that grace invoked in Zacchaeus repentant faith hence he's called a son of Abraham he's a man of faith Luke is recording for us his life is instantly transformed to one of generosity, integrity. He is justified by Jesus' presence. He is declared not guilty and righteousness begins to flow from his home salvation. And this can happen to anyone. This can happen to you. This can happen at any point in your life when you have an encounter with grace, when you have an encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, prior to this encounter, Before Jesus enters into Jericho, the walled city of our hearts, Jesus has taken the disciples aside and he's told them the following in chapter 19 verse 31, sorry, chapter 18 verse 31. Jesus took the 12 asides and he told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. Remember, this is before he's gone into Jericho. We're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him. They will flog Him and kill Him. And on the third day, He will rise again. The disciples didn't understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. And they did not know what He was talking about. Every preacher takes great heart when he reads that verse as you look back three quarters of the way through the sermon with vague looks on what is he talking about the disciples had been with jesus for upwards close to three years they had been witnessing all that he'd been doing they had been hearing all that he'd been teaching about the kingdom of god and what does luke say the disciples did not understand any of this its meaning was hidden from them and they didn't know what he was talking about now this is not some amusing aside this is Something of great theological import here. Actually, despite his best efforts, the disciples are struggling to understand what he is on about. The text, Jesus had just said that the Son of Man is going to suffer according to all that the prophets have said. And the disciples fail to make the link. They fail to make the link. Jesus is going to, as he enters into Jerusalem, about to fulfill all that was written of him in the prophets. Where might they turn to to read of the suffering? Well, supremely, they could turn to the gospel according to Isaiah. At the end of chapter 52, in Isaiah's letter, and all of chapter 3, where Isaiah describes the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. Isaiah 52 Verse 13 begins, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up, and he will be highly exalted. But before this is going to happen, Isaiah goes on to say the following. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. "'For what they were not told, they will see. "'And what they had not heard, they will understand. "'Who has believed our message? "'To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? "'He grew up before them like a tender shoot, "'and like a shoot out of dry ground. "'He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, "'nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. "'He was despised, rejected by mankind, "'a man of suffering and familiar with pain.' Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. In graphic terms, Isaiah speaks of the great exchange that will take place. The suffering servant will take our suffering and our iniquities upon himself. God's justice will be appeased and his righteousness will be restored to sinful humanity, 700 years before Jesus strolls into Jericho, before he goes into Jerusalem, he takes his disciples aside and says, all that the prophets write about, the Son of Man, this will be fulfilled. It's about to be fulfilled. And the means by which you will know this fulfillment, Jesus says, is the resurrection. When you hear this gospel, I wonder if you hear this gospel. I mean, do you hear what God is saying to you when you hear this gospel? Do you hear what God is saying to you? Last week, someone shared to me how God revealed the depth of his love for them as they listened to God's word being proclaimed. Do you hear what God is saying to you? Keep listening to what Isaiah says. Surely he took up our pain and our suffering. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied." By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Isaiah is, of course, talking about the suffering of Jesus. The son of man had to endure. The journey was dreadful. Not just the physical anguish that Isaiah accounts so graphically there. Not just the pain, the wounding, the crushing, the piercing, and the finally being killed. Assigned a grave to the wicked. But no, when God sees this, he turns his face away from his son. That's the anguish that Christ carried and bore for you. God, our Holy Father, turns his face away from his beloved son because there is and will be no sin in God's presence. Do you realize this morning the depth of love that God has for you? Do you realize this morning the depth of love that God has for you? And do you also realize the depth of sin that you carry in your hearts? God will cover over the sin. He will blot out the anger. He will wash you clean. Left alone the idols, the iniquities of your heart will grow and consume you. But if you humble yourself to be found by Jesus sometimes requires you face humiliation in the same way that Christ had to suffer humiliation to fulfill the word of Isaiah. Zacchaeus climbs a tree. He gains a different vantage point. He allows Jesus to come to him, to dine with him, to set him free. The reason that this gospel was written was to inform you of the reason, the good news, why Jesus, the Son of Man, came to earth. As Luke records, the reason he came was to seek and to save the lost. That's us. He came to seek and save the lost. He comes to search you out. He comes to the Jericho of your heart to tear down the walls. And he's inviting you this morning to tear down the walls anything that might be holding back the grace of God in your life, to tear it down, to throw it out. You look around the church this morning, and Peter's already testified to the clear out that happened here. Sometimes that's got to happen in our hearts to strip away the junk, to throw out the junk so that God's grace can encounter you, the love of God can encounter you. And God comes to you this morning and he says, I want to come and dine with you. I want to come and live with you. I want to make my life in your life. And Zacchaeus says, yeah, yeah, I want that too. I want that too. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this household he declares that you're not guilty you're forgiven you're justified more than that he gives himself to you in the person of the holy spirit streams of righteousness begin to flow from you where there was greed and pride and self-absorption it's replaced with generosity and integrity as you begin to live the righteous life of christ streams of living water Today, salvation has come to this household. Do you know that gift of salvation? Do you know that gift of righteousness, of being in right relationship with God? It's been bought for you by the suffering of Christ. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. That's you, that's now, and all you have to do is to say, yes, come Lord Jesus. Let's bow our hearts and our heads in prayer. Father, as we bow before you now, we acknowledge that at times we are like that Pharisee, looking around at people, looking at others, comparing ourselves with others, and you would humble us, and you would humble us. We're here this morning to say thank you that the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus, humbled himself in total humility so that we might be lifted up from from the dark places, from those walled places that we have created for ourselves. And so I pray for each of us here. Lord, we thank you for this word of truth that says today, as we open our hearts to you, Lord Jesus, as we welcome you into our lives, your promise is that you'll come and dine with us and streams of righteousness will flow through our lives come holy spirit invade your church invade the hearts of the children of your church that we might know this generosity we might know this integrity we might live our lives for your glory and in your name jesus we pray amen